things. And uh, where I stand is not a very enviable position. I've been around AA for a long time. You can tell by looking at me, I've been somewhere for a long time. <laughs> And I want to earn my lunch and tell you, make friends with you. Uh, no place is as well received in Alcoholics Anonymous as California. Would it interest you to know that Alcoholics Anonymous was seven years old before its worldwide membership exceeded the registration at this convention. Would you believe that? How would you like to be responsible for the perpetuation of this society? But you know the horror of the old member in AA that it might one day go away. But in listening to what we've heard here tonight, and watching the attitude of this whole convention, I think AA's in pretty good hands. I think it's in awfully good hands. Like I say, I'm an old member, and it's very frightening sometimes. It's very awe-striking to watch what has happened in these great ones to come and make a contribution. And as they said in Macbeth, to strut and fret for an hour on the stage, and then he's heard no more. But we've had some greats in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were the ones that brought me here. I like California ideas. I like the flamboyant way that you folks do things around here. You're really laid back, I'll tell you. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the wife and I were just out the other day looking on the beach, you know, and we picked up one of those immense seashells, you know, the pink ones. And just on whim, I put it to my ear, and it said, My name's Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. I probably had better take for the text of my sermon there. Uh, in behalf of the old member, that's what I want to talk about tonight in self-defense of the old member. You know, in the animal world, if you frighten one of the mothers when they have their young, they will eat it. You knew that. A mink will do that. You frighten the mother mink, she'll eat the young. But in AA, when you panic them bastards, they eat the old ones. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know whether there's much compensation for being an old member or not, is there? When I was new in AA one night, I was washing the cups and an old member came and put his arm around me and he said young man you're going to go a long way in this society I like your attitude 
and I just beamed at him. Twenty-six years later, I picked up the same dirty cups and started to wash them, and a new man was heard to say, Look at the old bastard, he's still trying to run this outfit. <laughs> Can you hear? You can hear? Good. I'll try better. Robin, Alcoholics Anonymous has gotten so fashionable these days, you know. It's really up here. We've, uh, you know, some people come to A because they think it's the thing to do. Um, lately in Hollywood, they've been casting alcoholics on the soap operas. We've replaced uh, two homosexuals and one bad ovary. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it's really, really popular, but if you're coming to, if you're coming to AA to make any points, forget it for the newcomer. There's no status here, and there is just a little bit of a stigma still on alcoholism. Now, to prove that, I have a nephew who's a psychiatrist in Dallas. I have another nephew in San Francisco that's a homosexual. And my people brag on them more than they do on me, and I'm an alcoholic. But this is really laid-back country out here. I wonder, in California, how would you know if you've been sent to the insane asylum? <laughs> I don't know about the humor in society. If we didn't laugh, we'd go crazy. And the origin of AA came out of the laughter. We had to laugh. The desperation was so great. It would go crazy. I would take you back to a day years ago, 1966 to be exact, to show you the humor of our co-founder, Bill. We were in Indianapolis together. He and Lois and Mary and I, and we were to a doctor's convention, and a goofier bunch of dingbats you never saw in all your life. And we were the only two non-doctors there. And it was not a big crowd, some 200. And the first night, they had the microphone on a long cord, and each one of these doctors introduced himself and what his forte was. You know about forte, that's a little town up the other side of Fresno. <laughs> and so they would get up, and it went the length of the building, and they'd get up, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I'm a psychologist, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I'm a proctologist, and psychiatrist, and right on down the line. It came to the very last, and it passed me, and it came to dear Bill. And he got up, 
And he said, My name is Bill Wilson. I'm an amateur faith healer presently unemployed. <laughs> but we had to we had to come from behind in those days and if, if you want to believe in something, my friends, study the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and see what thin thread we hung upon in so many places and couldn't bend. The, when we first came out in New York in the very beginning, the American Medical Association went on record to say that we were a bunch of crackpots. And I lived to see the day I was in St. Louis in 1955 that the girl referred to today to hear the president of the American Medical Association, Dr. Bauer, eat those words very gracefully. And now we know who the crackpots are. <laughs> but I don't know, I think this is a, a, a real thing, and I have to go back to the early beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous and to the relationship that our co-founder had when his only two concerns amounted to the fact of what's your relationship with God and what is your availability to the sick alcoholic. These are the two fundamental requisites for functioning in the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I didn't, I got to tell you a little, and I hear this is the most misquoted thing I've ever heard in here, and I'd love to correct it. I'm an English major. We hear so much, I'm reading chapter 5, and they say what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. That ain't the way it reads. It's just as crappy out there as it ever was. It reads what we were like. What happened? What we are like now. And that saddles you with the problem. So I would not attempt to delineate upon the mystique of Alcoholics Anonymous because there are thousands here who probably know more than I do. I'm only tell you a simple story of recovery. I like that word. It's in the first sentence of the foreword of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And then uh, Bill was a, oh God, he was bullheaded. He was not very pleasant in some cases. And uh, he, I'm so glad that he was. He would not take a bad answer for a final word. He was condemned to die by Dr. Silkworth like most of us were, and he hung to it. I guess every family's gone in front of the physician at one time or another. He and Lois made the last trip. There they stood. Dr. Silkworth said to her the same thing that they told my wife and yours. You're going to have to lock him up and forget him. When he said to Bill these words, you're suffering from a neurotic compulsion to drink. 
that no amount of willpower, no amount of education, and no treatment will relieve. And Bill wouldn't take it. He knew full well that one day, somehow, under some conditions, that he had beat it. And I'm glad he was bullheaded. I'm glad he wouldn't give up and quit. Because until the advent of Alcoholics Anonymous, the drunk could only find his solution in death. And thank God we can find it in life now. And he went through a series of terrible experiences, but finally devised a program for us that required neither the use of willpower, required neither the use of any education or any treatment. And I'm here tonight and so are you, because he wouldn't take no for an answer. I didn't want to be a drunk. I didn't sit down and say to myself, one day I will be the village drunk per se. It just kind of crept up on me. And I took a drink. Every now and then people ask me, doctors particularly, around uh, about an alcoholic. What is an alcoholic? It's very hard for me to say. I've been around a long time and I can't give you a good letter perfect description. And he said, this fellow said to me, well, you've got to tell me something about an alcoholic. And I said, well, uh, I believe that alcoholics drink more than non-alcoholics. I never have met one of us around here that didn't drink, you know. And I've come to believe that no matter what your genetic background may be, if you don't drink that flit, ain't nothing going to happen to you. Drinking is our problem. It talks about it very specifically in the book. Not thinking, drinking is our problem. And he talks about it at great length. But the book of ours, for God's sake, it's gentle with you. It's not harsh. It's not hard to take. But Bill goes in our solution chapter and gives a very thorough description of an alcoholic. If you remember our solution chapter. Then he says, all of these things would be purely academic if the, drink, if the alcoholic didn't take that first drink. Be purely academic. Then he says the thing, therefore, the alcoholic's problem centers in his mind. What do you think when you ask about one of us and somebody does this? The problem centers in his mind, not in his prostate. Not in his armpit, nor under his knee, in the mind. Isn't that the nicest way on earth to tell you you're crazy? <laughs> we come there and they let him talk about it. But a drunk don't like for you to talk about his head at all, you know. It just hurts him to death. And he'd rather talk about God than to let you talk about his head, you know. 
Sanders in his mind. He's crazy. And I kind of like that. It gives me a cover-up for that. And in our book of experience, it says practically no one sobers up on the basis of self-knowledge. So you can't think your way out of alcoholism. you got to do it with your feet. And I suspect there's more people here today because somebody used their feet instead of their head. Give us a chance of walking our way out of it and not thinking. I remember, was it Roden who did the sculpture of the thinker? Have you seen him? He's sitting there. The bastard's naked. <laughs> Just thought himself completely out of clothes. I put a caption on it. I have a picture of it hanging in my office. I put a capture, a caption under Roden's finger, and it reads like this. I thought that room at the end of the hall was the restroom. <laughs> but the deep thinkers, God forbid, we got a lot of them. Bear them every now and then. And I have never seen anybody too dumb to make this thing, but... The geniuses sure have a hell of a hard time with it, okay? It's sure hard. I drank. I took a drink when I was 17 to be one of the boys, to be accepted in a crowd, and there were seven of us, and it did something to me. It didn't do to those other fellows. I don't have any explanation for it except to say that drink did something for me. And I remember it as though it were yesterday. And I spent the next 18 and a half years shooting at that drink. And I never could make it again. Never could find one with the exhilaration that that first drink gave me. Oh, my God. But can you, oh, it was just something else. It, Kind of like a closed umbrella going down, and it opens up all of a sudden, you know. And your shoelaces would wink at you, you know. Oh, God, yeah. We, a lot of people in A worry about whether they're an alcoholic or not. Back years ago, General Service had a study at John Hopps University, and they came out with a pamphlet under titled 44 Questions. And they were little innocuous questions like, uh, Claude, uh, did your boss give you that look today? Or some little innocuous thing. You could read all 44 of them and not, uh, you know, you didn't know. Now, I have contrived here, out of my sheer genius, some questions that I think it won't take quite 44. Have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? <laughs> Have you ever had malfunction of the zipper? <laughs> when it gets into its terminal stages, it's called pink shoelace. That's it. Have you ever been arrested while in jail? 
Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving in? Have you ever woke up in bed with a circus midget? <laughs> yeah. Did you did you hear about that circus about that midget that got thrown out of the nudist colony because he was going around getting his nose in everybody's business? <laughs> Uh, no. Here, here's the one that'll separate the men from the boys. Have you ever woke up in the morning kind of with the brown whimpers and feeling rather delicately and lose your eyeglasses and wash your teeth with preparation H? I'll give you a pucker. <laughs> Good morning, dear. I don't think we have to go very far here. I believe we have some people who... Good God, that word drives me crazy. I believe we've got some people here who can identify. <laughs> From the resounding laughter that we hear. And I think it's a cherished thing. And I, Bill in chapter 4 says in our book, Experience, why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered, he said. And I think that's the cherished gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, the gift of rippling laughter. I shot at that drink for a long time, and it was not compulsive. Nothing. I used alcohol. That's a good way to describe it. I just used it. I knew what it would do. And God, I wanted it to do it. I just stayed in a state of wanting it to do it. You know that. And it was not compulsive. I, it just did its job well. And But pretty soon this little town I live in, Tyler, Texas, became too small in a hurry, you know. I don't know whether you know where Tyler is. It's down there. Little old town. We've got one yellow page in the telephone book down there. <laughs> got one monkey in the zoo. Our population's made up of people who have just been stranded there at one time or another. It's not a hell of a good town, I'll tell you like that. So for a guy bubbling over with all of this flit and his newfound genius, Tyler became too small, and I went west, and I joined you laid-back people and moved to Hollywood, and I took for a profession out there, God damn this, pardon me, the terrible thing. I was an understudy to one of the more eminent fashion designers in Hollywood of ladies' lingerie. Now, this is a pretty good trick for an East Texas clod. It's a lot of fun. 
If any of you girls got a peach, I've been gone a long time. This is where you cut these soft, silk, sleazy, intimate things that the women wear. It's a hell of a job. Now, we've got a step in Alcoholics Anonymous that infers that you might have a gopher in the garden. The second one, talking about your head again. If you cut a bunch of brassieres with three of them holes in them, you're nuts, you know. I told the psychiatrist about that, and he said it was just wishful thinking. But needless to say, I cut myself out of the business. Job number one. It hurt. It hurt. Many of you who have been the progression of alcoholism know how it hurt. This is the beginning of a question where there's no answer. And in the progression of illness, alcohol, we live with no answer until we ultimately, by a great good fortune, find this answer here. But I didn't know why it was happening to me. I worked for a fine Jewish fellow, and he's a rather whimsical sort of a guy, real humorous, if you want to believe it. One day he was talking to me, and he said, Well, Joe, uh, you're fired. Just like that. And then he said, that, you know, there's some good comes out of everything. He said, uh, I sure am glad that if you'd have been a rabbi the way you handle those scissors, you'd have destroyed our whole race. <laughs> and the number one job. And I want to pray upon this because drunks have this problem leaving a place and going to another. We never are arriving. We're always leaving somewhere. A drunk don't know what it is to arrive. And I go get my second job. Now, a drunk would never be able to get his second job if he told the truth about the first one, would he? Never could he do that. So this is the beginning of the big lie then we become very proficient at this, and it becomes a hard part of our whole scheme of life, the lie. We have to put on an act from then on. And God knows that act is a hard one to put on. When you get to where you have to do it 24 hours a day, this is one of the greatest reliefs that we find in Alcoholics Anonymous is the fact that whatever we are, that's what we can be in AA. We don't have to put on an act for anybody at any time. And this is the greatest rest period that the alcoholic will ever have, when he discovers the freedom of not having to be the poor player and strut across the stage and put on an act. Now, I bought a plumber's license out the back door of a union hall in San Pedro, and would you believe I went into the shipyard as a master plumber? Here's a guy that's never picked up anything any heavier than a pair of scissors, and you know I was a fraud. And those were the days when you were frozen to your job. And it didn't take me long to thaw out. 
I have a document that hangs in my den at home now, signed by the United States Department of War Labor, and it prohibits me from working within 25 miles of the city of Los Angeles. Number two, have you ever heard the plaintiff cry, or have you made the plaintiff cry to the dear Alanon, honey, let's go somewhere else and start all over again. Let's go somewhere where we don't know anybody. What we're saying is let's go somewhere where they don't know us, you know that. And I moved to Sacramento from Los Angeles. And I hear these guys get up behind the podium and tell these sad tales of all the things that befell them during the days of their drinking. Sometimes it becomes rather competitive in our AA meetings. It becomes a competitive exercise. And I think I can win the contest with no problem. When I went to Sacramento from Los Angeles, I was run over by the welcome wagon. <laughs> you can't get it any worse than that. You just cannot. And I've noticed another thing about us, we, that as we make the progression following the neck of that bottle, that the things that we can do become less selective as we go along. You know, isn't that the... You ever seen these arrows over them liquor stores down in Texas? They always point down. Ain't a damn thing up there. It's all down here, you know. And this seems to be the progression of the alcoholic. So I went to Sacramento, and the choices were few. And I went to work of all places for the railroad. And I'd love to say here that... They're the most narrow-minded group of people that I've ever come in contact with. I have uh, breakfast every morning with a corporate lawyer who represents two railroads, and he has a very candid way of describing railroad men. He says they're the highest-paid bunch of ignorant sons of bitches he's ever come in contact with. <laughs> And you know, the railroads have a rule about drinking. It reads that if you're seen coming out of an establishment that dispenses alcoholic beverages, you can be fired. And I wasn't seen coming out very often. <laughs> if I came out then, I was flying through the air so fast you couldn't identify me. You know that. We don't come out. And I'm sure that they must have figured that if a man was a little bit idle that he would ultimately mix something up. And they do a strange thing on the railroad. I never quite comprehended it. It's always bothered my mind. They run more than one train on a track. And I never quite figured out how they did it. I used to sit in the back and hold a watch in my hand and pray and say, God, it'll happen to me one day, you know. And it did. It sure did. It did. Uh, I've never been able to stand this, and I know this is, must be an alcoholic trait, or maybe it's just me. 
Nobody's ever been able to say, don't do that to me. I don't know whether you like it or not, but I just can't stand it. It just bothers me. I was very recently making a lecture up in the University of Illinois in a hall such as this, a dining hall, and they had a sign up on the wall that I had to look at all the time I was talking. It said, don't take the dishes out of this hall. And I'd talk for a little while, look at the sign. Don't take, I would love to report to you, got two of them damn dishes in my den at home. They have absolutely no collectible value, but they told me don't steal them, and I, I can't stand that. Don't. You can't. And I've never met an alcoholic yet that just was thought that was a palatable statement. And we ran these trains up and down the mountains over here in the Sierras out of Sacramento. And when you got top of the mountain, you got rid of all your helper engines. Maybe you follow this vernacular. And the railroad had the unmitigated effrontery to hang a sign up in the depot. They used bulletins, kind of like the services, about as efficient, 20%. And the essence of this sign was it read like this. Can you imagine this? It is physically impossible to make a mistake in this interlocking system that they had at the top of the mountain. <laughs> Why, I dreamed about that sign. I saw it in my sleep. Physically impossible. What were they saying to me? You can't make a mistake up there. And I did. By some quirk of alcoholic circumstance, I got two engines going towards one another. Between them were four cars of apples, carrots, lettuce, and celery. And I made the biggest Waldorf salad that is in recorded history. And they wanted to fire me. Can you imagine? We had an investigation like they have in government, I suppose. And I had another alcoholic representing me. And we proved the thing that it was about a million to one shot, I guess. This fellow proved that there was a Mexican track walker that night walking along the track, swinging a lantern innocently, and that I had taken his lantern as a given signal. They never did find the Mexican. But they gave me 60 days. Now, I remember the old superintendent when he came out of that investigation. He was livid with rage. He was apoplectic. He was a big man. He was red in his face. And he knew that he had been had by a drunk. And he said some words to me that have sometimes been said by the dear Alanon to the drunken husband. I'll get you if it's the last thing I ever do. 
You don't have to get even with an alcoholic. Forget it. If left to his own devices, if left to his own devices, without any help, he get even with himself. He's got a little contrivance in him that'll take care of the situation. And there's no misery that you can heap upon him. There's no names that you can call him that he hadn't called himself at night on the pillow. He's ahead of you, way ahead in that department. So you've got to leave him go until by some quirk of great fortune they can find you and I. They, I'm going to make it brief. I was, I used to like to use this great terminology. This sounds about like Clancy talking. I left California a thoroughly discredited man. That sounds like something he would say. They read me out of California and ran me in and went to Texas and they ultimately ran me back again. And I remember going to a psychiatrist and, and uh, talking to him and he asked me a question. He said, have you ever felt unwanted? <laughs> and when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was wanted in two states and not wanted in 46 others, you know. They ran me out, and the only place I had to go was back to Tyler. I hated it with a passion. I would only, in my good days, when I was running high, I would only visit for a very short time, just out of necessity, to go back to this stinking, lousy little place, Hickville, to the smart guy from Hollywood and Beverly Hills. But this time... I had to go. I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I went back to Tyler. And this is kind of a reversal of the story of the prodigal son. They saw him coming from afar <laughs> and threw his butt in jail. This is what happened to me. My own mother did this great thing to me, put me in jail, and here I was, the smart guy, the resourceful man, the hot cat, the fellow that's laid back from Hollywood and Beverly Hills, and to throw me in a pokey down in Hickville, if you don't think I hated like no one has ever hated before, cooped up like an animal, like we all get. And I understand one thing that's in our book, and that's the word helpless. I suspect that we have to run out of alternatives, some of us, before we can see the absolute helplessness of the alcoholic. And if I live to be a thousand, I suspect that my memory of my helplessness will keep me functioning in the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever want to walk away from it. And here I am, cooped up, helpless, helpless. 
And one Monday morning there came a fellow to my boudoir with the vertical Venetian blinds. And looking back upon it, it was a cruel, humiliating scene. Really was. Really a cruel, humiliating. Here's a cooped up animal. A thing. Really. And this guy came to the cell and talked to me. From here on, I don't think it is quite so humorous. And he asked for me by name. And he stood there between those bars told me all about himself, told me about what alcohol had done to him, told me lots and lots and lots of things. He seemed to have plenty of time, and I couldn't tell you a lousy word that he said. I remember the fact that he stood still. Oh, God, how still did that man stand. Just stood there. Still, you know, we drunks, or you know, uh, morning. <laughs> and he stood so still. And he told me all about it. And when he saw he couldn't get anywhere, and I was trying to rattle him and pick at him, and I couldn't raise him a bit. You know, I have to go back to the teachings of our book to tell you about this encounter. There seems to be some sort of a misconception about our program in this particular area. Maybe we can do a little something about it right at this point. In chapter 7, in the first paragraph of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, I would love to read it to you. It's comprised of four sentences. And it starts like this. Practical experience shows us that the surest immunity against drinking is extensive work with other alcoholics. Then there's a short sentence. This works when all other activities fail. This works when all other activities fail. Then there is an unequivocal command, probably the only one in the book Alcoholics Anonymous because it has a, an exclamation mark behind it, if you please. Carry this message to the other alcoholic. And I don't know how you're going to screw that one up. I don't know how you're going to intellectualize that statement how you're going to equivocate it with anything else. This works when all other activities fail. When your prayer group blows it, when your transcendental meditation group blows it, when your sitting and touching group blows it, This works when all other activities fail. Now that has nothing to do with me, except the fact that this feller had read it and done his work well. 
He came to the jail not for me. God knows I was an it. He came to the jail to perpetuate his own sobriety. He'd read the chapter and read it well, that the surest immunity against drinking is extensive work with alcoholics. And he was going to see another it, an arrogant, unresponsive stinker like me. And I'm so damn grateful that he chose me to work upon, really, to be the recipient of the action that he had to take to perpetuate his own sobriety. Thank God for that. Now, I didn't follow him for God's sake. It was a cruel thing. Couldn't do it. I couldn't take down. I couldn't break down the barrier of hate. And he walked away. And as he turned to leave, as unconcerned as you might well say, he'd done his job. That's all. And he marked his name upon the back of a little pamphlet and said over his shoulder, if you please propitious moment. Is that a good word, Clancy? For us. And if you wait too long, sometimes we die. So in this maudlin state, one night, I got all of me I could stand. All of me I could stand. I done had you out of the picture a long time ago, and I punched my ticket in AA. I fell down and said, God help me. And that, that's all the ticket is to this society, is a willingness to make a beginning. It says. It says in our book, the ticket's not very high. Our third tradition takes care of the willingness. Only requirement to get in this bunch of dingbats is the wanting. That's right. That's all. It's easy. So I did that night, and I got up and walked 2,600 miles, literally, to find this fellow that gave me the pamphlet. And can you imagine how I felt telling this dramatic story about walking 2,600 miles to go to AA? And I found out after I got sober that there was an AA club three blocks from that river. Ah, it'll break your story all to pieces when you find that out. Takes the drama and the tears away, I'll tell you. But I went back and looked for the guy that had come to see me in the jail. I suspected his story was the same. It was me who had changed, and I begged him, if you please, to take me there. That's my story. That's my story. And that's the end. And I went to my first AA meeting, and God, I'll never forget it. I never will forget it. And I think that maybe when you see these signs hanging around our clubhouses that say, I am responsible. I think that our ultimate responsibility is what we show the drunk the first night he comes. When he leaves that first night, no matter what you have done to him, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And whether he be right or wrong, it's his night. 
I had my knife and you had yours. And he's entitled to an act for his. I think this is the ultimate responsibility. And I have a horror of seeing a fellow come to some of the more fashionable places where they play in games and impressing one another. And the new guy stands and his bills so adequately put it in 1949, a year before I got sober, and turns his face to the wall. To walk away and die without finding an answer. Bill was very prophetic. He had vision that none of us seemed to have acquired. And in 1949, he said, there are probably a million alcoholics out there somewhere that would come to Alcoholics Anonymous if they only knew what we did. How prophetic is that? Very recently, we've been apprised of the fact that these people are here. These people are here tonight that he talked about in 1949 so that they can find out what happens at AA. So it makes that first meeting night for that guy the jewel of an enterprise, a great responsibility, an awesome responsibility. And the night I went, they did their job well. It seems to me, and Alcoholics Anonymous is really what it seems to me, but it seems to me that night that these people quit everything they were doing and immediately became interested in me. Some dingbat came up to me that didn't look like he had a third grade education and said, We glad you're here. And I thought, You glad who's here? You know. We glad you're here. And they stopped what they were doing and they did their job well so that I could get well. And I'm so very grateful for it. I can always, I've had to compare every other AA meeting with that one. The old sheriff that night who had locked me up in his jail for felonious drunk driving was at that meeting. Two years sober, bless the old man. And he had a reputation for brutality, the sheriff. It was not uncommon for him to bounce some of the prisoners off of the jail wall. He was a mean one. And the night I came there, hey, before the meeting was over, he did what Bob talked about a while ago. Put his arm around me, the old rough sheriff, the brutal man, who had found our program and let it work in his life. And he said to me, I love you. And you can get sober just like I did. What is the transmittal of such a gift? Who has it but we? You know, we're the luckiest fashion of society in existence. No one has the promise that we have. Chapter 9 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the greatest promise one could expect. Cling to the thought that in God's hands your dark past is the greatest treasure you possess your dark past. I thought I was going to have to get rid of it like I, you know, the religionists and the reformers had told me, do away with it and change your life, they said. 
And AA makes me the promise that my dark past is the only thing that separates me from the man on the street. It's the only tool that I've got to work with. And I shall repeat, cling to the thought that in God's hand, your dark past is the greatest treasure you possess. Then he makes you a promise. Then he makes you a promise that nobody but us, nobody but us dingbats, us fumblers, us people who could do nothing, could ever hear. He says, with it, with it, with your dark past, you can avert death and misery for others. Who gets the promise but us? Why, to be a day in this society, this society. Who was the philosopher that said, an hour of peace is better than 70 years of prayer. The peace that we get now, while it's anonymous. And I think, gosh, we're the luckiest people on earth. We're the luckiest absolute people, and I think God's compensating like he is in our families when an old member passes away. There always seems to be a new one born that we can shower our love on even in greater measure than we did for the old one. The same thing is so applicable in Alcoholics Anonymous. When we lose one, there seems to be another one knocking at the door. I think sometimes that we argue near to hypnosis. That if he'll just get on his knees, he can get on his feet. Thank you so very much.